You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes from the Philippines reporting for Room Now at the virtual ACR 2021. Today, I wanted to talk about abstract number 363 by the group of Dr. Dennis Padabni which looked into the disease course and burden of patients with axial spondyloarthritis enrolled in the PROOF study. PROOF was a real-world prospective observational study conducted in a number of rheumatology centers around the world. Um, these included both radiographic and non-radiographic axial SPA patients. Results of their study show that both groups had comparable disease burden and treatment over five years. Some important points to take note of in their findings um, is that it is consistent with previous studies. Um, number one, um, for the radiographic axial spa group, majority were men and had elevated CRP levels. And number two, Extraarticular manifestations such as IBD and psoriasis were more common among the non-radiographic axial spa group. So I'd just like to pose a few questions um, with regards to, to this study. So how does this results add to what we already know in terms of axial spa management? And will the distinction between radiographic and non-radiographic axial spa matter in terms of treatment outcomes? Since the study presented real-world data, it is more reflective of what we see in the clinics. Regular screening for extra-articular involvement and non-radiographic axial spa, for example, can lead us in choosing the appropriate treatment for these groups of patients. Also, by profiling our patients, monitoring treatment response can be less of a challenge, and probably earlier interventions can be initiated. Follow me on Twitter at Rumorampa and tune in to RoomNow.com for more coverage of the ACR Convergence 2021. Thank you. Hello, I'm Anthony Chan. I'm a rheumatologist from London, United Kingdom, and reporting here at ACR 21 for RoomNow. One of the issues that we have in uh, the area of spondyloarthritis is that of pain. A lot of our patients that we see uh, have issues with chronic pain. Uh, despite treatment with um, therapies such as biologic treatments, and even with resolution of inflammation, a lot of the patients continue to be troubled with pain. And one of the interesting uh, abstracts that we have at the ACR21 is abstract number 360, which is looking at the aspect of pain. And this is from the European map of axial spondyloarthritis or EMAS. And this had over 2000 of our patients, participants who participated in this study. And they looked at questions such as the BASTI, functional scores, and also general health questionnaires. And it was very interesting to look at how pain correlated with some of these other factors in the patients. And what came out very strongly was that the, the prevalence of pain was much higher with a few of these patient factors, and this includes employment, uh, whether they had difficulties at work, and also uh, issues with education and gender as well. 
On top of that, uh, the presence of any mental health issues such as anxiety or depression also correlated very strongly with the aspect of increasing pain. Now, while some of these may be obvious, the important thing is for us to be assessing these factors as to behind each of these scores, behind the outcome measures that we use, such as the BASTI or the pain score, what are the patient factors that are driving the high levels of pain? And to be able to dissect this down to the individual level, understanding some of these factors may actually be the key for us to help manage uh, these patients better in terms of their chronic pain. So this is a useful study where it demonstrates to us uh, some of these important patient factors uh, that we have to be considering when assessing our patients, especially with the outcomes uh, with biologic treatment. So while we may be using these treatments, there may be other non-inflammatory reasons uh, why these patients may continue to have persistent pain. And the idea of non-response has to be looked at differently, not just from a biological response, but also from a non-inflammatory pain response. And this paper, I think, highlights some of these key important patient factors that we should be considering. So I'm Anthony Chan, uh, reporting for Room Now. Thank you. Hello, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Olga Petrina. I'm a practicing rheumatologist in New York City, and I'm here with you today to share some updates from 2021 ACR meeting. Today, I would like to share an informa some information from the uh, abstract 0369, which talks about uh, pregnancy complications in patients with ankylosing spondylitis. Typically, when we talk about pregnancy complications in rheumatology, we think about conditions like lupus, scleroderma, or other connective tissue disorders. While uh, inflammatory arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis, all these like, seemingly are more benign in terms of pregnancy. Interestingly enough, uh, this uh, Irish registry presented in this poster uh, speak to the opposite. Actually, in this particular uh, registry, out of 220 pregnancies that were recorded, only 166 resulted in live birth. Uh, risk of um, miscarriage in this re registry was 20.5%, which is a quite high risk. And about 58% of the pregnancies resulted in complications. Out of all of these pregnancies, 11% had more than one complication, which uh, speaks about quite a higher levels of um, poor pregnancy outcomes than we usually would think of inflammatory arthritis. Uh, when it comes to this per particular complications, we see that the risk of C-section was seen in about 11% of patients, preterm delivery close to 11%. And then for those uh, fetal complications, the risk of NICU admission was about 11.5%, which is all very high numbers. And that would be interesting to see the deeper analysis um, of those risk, um, uh, risk factors that contribute to these complications. For example, disease severity uh, treatments used, although they're not available in this particular poster. Lastly, uh, they report a high prevalence uh, or rather low prevalence, prevalence of breastfeeding in this particular uh, cohort and 33% of the women were breastfeeding only. Again, we don't understand the reasoning about low uh, level of breastfeeding. It could be the medications patients use or they're concerned about the side effects. 
uh, or concerns for the uh, for the exposure of the newborn. Uh, it would be interesting to see this data going forward. All in all, I find this uh, quite interesting, and I think it would trigger uh, more study and more observation in pregnancies and ankylosing spondylitis in the future. I hope you find this interesting, and if you do, please follow us on Room Now. Hello everyone, I'm Olga Petrina and I'm here with you today to share some updates from the ACR meeting uh, of 2021. Today I would like to highlight abstract 0195, which uh, speaks about use of JAK inhibitors in refractory adult and childhood onset stealth disease. So we know that treating stealth disease may be challenging as there are very few treatment options available that are effective and even less so approved, actually there are no approved, it's an orphan disease. So whenever we um, have a patient that doesn't respond to treatment well, um, it becomes very challenging to keep this, uh, their condition under control. And here uh, we have a report of seven cases of refractory stills disease in both adulthood and childhood, where um, authors tried using JAK inhibitors in. And even though none of the patients achieved complete response in this particular study, there is some utility in use of JAK inhibitors based on this report. Apparently, um, as many as 57% uh, of the patients achieved partial response, which is some improvement in their disease activity, and quite a bit of patients were able to decrease uh, steroid dose over time. So in a, in a group of the patients who were partial responders, average uh, dose decrease of the steroids was 63%. And even in the group that was a non-responder, uh, they were able to reduce steroid use by 65%. So even though we don't understand um, this disease very well in terms of treatment options. There are some uh, potential uh, possibilities here for the for the future development, and I think it would be interesting to see a future analysis of uh, each individual jack inhibitors and how they perform in this uh, particular condition, as well as. Uh, having more patients uh, who, who were tried in this group of medications to, to draw some more conclusions. And lastly, when it, have, uh, when it comes to safety profile, the tolerance of the medication in this particular group was quite good. Uh, there was only one case of organized pneumonia, which led to discontinuation of treatment, but the rest of the patients did well. So all in all, while it is not a good option for monotherapy for patients with cell disease, JAK inhibitors can offer some utility as an add-on treatment in terms of lowering disease activity and also uh, helping to lower the dose of the steroids over time. I hope this is helpful and useful. And if you like this report, please follow us in the room now for more updates. Hello, everyone. I'm Richard Conway uh, from Dublin, Ireland, and I'm reporting from ACR Convergence 2021 for Room Now. I'm here to talk to you today uh, about a poster uh, in today's uh, poster uh, session on Saturday. It was poster number 564 uh, with first author Vanessa Kronzer um, and senior author uh, Jeff Sparks. And you know already when uh, Jeff and his group were involved um, that this is going to be a good study and that the methodology is really going to be um, on point. And this one certainly didn't disappoint. So this study was titled The Association of Sinusitis, Pharyngitis and Respiratory Tract Disease Burden with Incident uh, Rheumatoid Arthritis. So a bit of background to this one is that we know, and the hypothesis being in rheumatoid arthritis, that there is this association with um, respiratory tract uh, disease. So we all know about the very strong association between smoking and rheumatoid arthritis. 
And then there are these uh, previously described associations with interstitial lung disease, which is seen about 10% of rheumatoid arthritis patients with bronchiectasis. And that paradigm has been extended more in recent years um, with associations seen for asthma and COPD. So the authors here, um, they uh, did a case control study uh, matching three controls uh, to one case. They used the Mass General Brigham Biobank to do this and they used logistic regression. And what they found was that sinusitis and pharyngitis uh, were associated with incident rheumatoid arthritis. And the odds ratios um, varied in and around 1.5 to 2 um, for uh, sinusitis and pharyngitis and were actually larger than the effects seen uh, for lower respiratory tract um, associations such as asthma and uh, COPD. The effects were seen both in seropositive and seronegative patients and there did seem to be a stronger effect in smokers, particularly those who smoked 10 or more packs, um, the 10 more pack year uh, smoking history. So this is a really interesting study. Um, it extends uh, the mucosal paradigm in rheumatoid arthritis um, to that of upper airway disease. And it um, leads us to all sorts of thoughts about what potential implications of this are clinically and whether perhaps we could prevent some cases of rheumatoid arthritis um, by addressing uh, sinusitis and pharyngitis. So all very exciting. And I'm sure there's lots more uh, to come on this. Uh, for more for, from ACR, uh, please, please log on to Room Now and feel free to follow me, Richard P.A. Conway, uh, on Twitter. Hi, my name is Akil Sood. I'm reporting for Room Now from Galveston, Texas. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Elena Macedova from uh, the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Macedova is a rheumatologist who has done extensive work on rheumatoid arthritis and aging. And today, I had the pleasure of uh, learning from Dr. Macedova at the expert panel on the five M's of aging. And today I want to focus on one of the M's, mentation. And Dr. Mastova has two abstracts uh, presented at ACR focusing on mentation, abstract 284, which is the risk factors for dementia in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, a population-based cohort study. And the second abstract is 1646, which is abnormalities in cerebral vascular biomarkers in patients with rheumatoid arthritis results from a prospective study on, of cognitive aging. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Mastova. Thank you for inviting me. Um, uh, I can walk you through uh, these abstracts. Yeah, we'll, yeah, um, well, yeah we'll love to talk about uh, both of your abstracts. Uh, I guess the first one will be um, uh, the first one, abstract 284. Um, would you be able to discuss some of the key findings from that abstract? Absolutely. So uh, that abstract was a retrospective uh, cohort study of patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Um, it was done uh, among the Olmsted County, Minnesota population using the Register Epidemiology Project resources. We were looking at uh, predictors of uh, dementia in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. We had a cohort of uh, slightly over 1,300 patients and uh, were able to identify a few risk factors for uh, dementia of all causes dementia, including age, which was not surprising, but also uh, cardiovascular disease, specifically stroke and uh, heart failure. And also uh, we found that uh, severity of rheumatoid arthritis, including swelling of large joints, um, uh, also played a role, a negative role um, in 
uh, uh, risk of dementia onset in these patients. So these were the major findings. And uh, uh, it does appear curious that among um, the risk factors, uh, cardiovascular disease emerged uh, along with uh, severe rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, and that, that's very interesting is that seeing the risk factors of the joint swelling, as well as the cardiovascular risk factors in stroke uh, associated with the increased risk for um, uh, cognitive, cognitive impairment. Um, I was curious, uh, did you look at the uh, duration of disease and see if that could be a mediator for these risk factors as well as the joint swelling in association with cognitive impairment? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, uh, you know, in uh, our other study, actually, that the one that I will be discussing, we did look at RA duration, and that uh, came uh, up as one of the uh, factors associated with um, cerebrovascular abnormalities, actually, by imaging. Um, in this study, <clears throat> RA duration by itself was not uh, was not a significant predictor uh, for, for some reason, and that Potentially could be because the duration uh, was about nine years on average, and then we started uh, in mid fifties. So perhaps this cohort is a little younger. Hmm, that's very interesting. And then, what are the future directions uh, for the study? Uh, so you know, it's it's interesting whether the association between inflammation or rheumatoid arthritis rather and dementia is uh, due to inflammation per se, and how much also uh, cerebrovascular and cardiovascular risk factors and uh, conditions um, uh, affect this association. So is there an interaction um, or um, some sort of other interplay, um, whether or not? Uh, composition of, of this uh, umbrella of dementia um, outcomes, including dementia subtypes like vascular dementia, uh, different uh, uh, in patients with rheumatoid arthritis as opposed to the general population, is the increased risk of dementia due to increased risk of vascular changes or and or uh, neurogen neurodegenerative changes leading to Alzheimer's disease, for example. Absolutely. That, that's really interesting. And even one thing too I saw was um, the DMARDs as well um, and the impact of DMARDs and cognitive function. Um, the majority of the participants in the study were on TNF inhibitors, is that correct? Yes, correct. So uh, the uh, TNF inhibitor was the predominant class uh, of medications and especially because the patients were enrolled uh, in uh, early years when TNFs were uh, in general predominant class of, of uh, biologics. So that explains it. Um, we do plan as part of the studies that are supported by my uh, R1 grant to address the impact of um, the systemic inflammatory burden, essentially um, evaluating the cumulative <clears throat> inflammation over the course of our duration uh, to the outcome of dementia and also looking at uh, the use of medications and trying to see if, if, they, play, um, if they play a role uh, perhaps uh, in prevention or uh, of onset or um, progression of dementia. Well, wow, that's very interesting. Um, yeah, that, that's really great to hear. And um, you, you touched a little bit upon your, um, your other abstract as well, um, abstract 1646. Uh, could you highlight some of the key findings from that abstract? Yeah, so that uh, abstract uh, was uh, different from me methodology standpoint. Uh, that uh, study enrolled um, patients from a Mayo Clinic study of aging uh, cohort. So that is a prospective study that's uh, also done uh, within Olmsted County uh, residents, uh, but it's done prospectively with very 
um, comprehensive evaluation of cognitive status, as well as uh, brain imaging, uh, identifying neuroimaging biomarkers of uh, cognitive, uh, as, um, suggestive of um, neurodegenerative disease or vascular changes in patients um, in general population and in particular in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. So among that cohort, which is about 6,000 patient, uh, patients uh, large, we identified patients uh, with rheumatoid arthritis who had neuroimaging studies and uh, uh, matched them to uh, general population comparators um, and uh, just compared how they... Um, uh, the prevalence of cognitive impairment, dementia, uh, comorbidities, as well as uh, uh, neuroimaging uh, biomarkers in these uh, two groups. Um, so um, in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, despite um, similar comorbidity profile and similar uh, clinically uh, similar cognitive status, um, similar prevalence of cognitively unimpaired uh, patients with cognitive impairment, which was about 20%, and a uh, small number of patients with dementia. And we found that patients with rheumatoid arthritis actually were more likely to have uh, this uh, higher white matter hyperintensity volume, which is a proxy to cerebrovascular abnormalities and was completely subclinical without any other associated findings um, with no difference in prior uh, strokes or uh, heart failure uh, or other comorbidities. So that was a, a quite a curious find, a finding and uh, potentially can give us um, maybe tools to screen for early um, markers of a predictive of uh, cognitive impairment in the future because these um, white matter hyperintensities have been um, associated in other studies with onset of uh, cognitive decline and dementia. Absolutely, that, that's very interesting. And so we're able to find um, if these uh, these imaging findings correlate strongly with uh, cognitive impair impairment or dementia, or is that too early to say at this time? Uh, so we can't say based on this study because they didn't differ in these outcomes clinically. They were they were similar um, in prevalence of these uh, outcomes between the groups. But uh, for the future studies, we did outline um, identifying, uh, first of all, the role of systemic inflammation in these cere cerebrovascular changes, and then associating these changes to cognitive impairment and dementia in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, and certainly uh, understanding whether DMARDs and uh, biologics uh, may play a role in preventing um, these biomarkers, these uh, neuroimaging changes from occurrence or preventing progression uh, from these neuroimaging changes to uh, clinically evident uh, cognitive decline. Absolutely. And that's, that was my next question too, is this, what are the future directions? And you answered that is that, you know, looking at, especially it would be really interesting to see how DMARDs affect um, the uh, impact on cognitive function, how this correlates with the imaging and even from a previous abstract as well. And that's, that's really interesting and very remarkable. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, dementia is an incurable disease so far. And so, um, you know, just thinking along the lines of inflammation and its uh, potential impact and trying to see if this can be 
a potential uh, target for treatment uh, in patients with rheumatologic conditions, specifically in rheumatoid arthritis, but also that can be uh, to an extent then extrapolated to other chronic inflammatory conditions and to uh, to some part uh, to the general population because uh, uh, the burden of inflammation is increasing with aging. Uh, so um, the implications uh, of these studies is, are expected to be broad. Absolutely, and that's that's very interesting. Yeah, thank you, so, thank you so much, and really appreciate it. I really enjoyed hearing about both of your abstracts and really remarkable work that you've done on uh, aging and rheumatoid arthritis. And as you said too, is the broader implications as well uh, within the field of rheumatology. It's very exciting, and I'm really really happy to interview with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow reporting uh, live from ACR 2021 for Room Now. Um, I'd like to share with you a really interesting and uh, unique abstract on psoriatic arthritis that I ran across today. And this is abstract uh, 449, which focused on the identification of serum protein biomarkers at baseline to distinguish radiographic progressors from non-progressors in patients with active psoriatic arthritis. This study used two proteomic approaches in roughly 84 psoriatic arthritis patients in the SPIRIT Exquisimab trial. Uh, the first approach used a unbiased mass spectrometry, and the second approach used a pre-existing protein biomarker panel. Over 21,000 peptides corresponding to over 500 proteins were identified, and data from the two proteomic approaches were subjected to machine learning statistical analysis, which revealed a total of 103 candidate biomarker peptides corresponding to 69 proteins that could potentially discriminate psoriatic arthritis patients who will progress to radiographic damage from those who will not. Um, in addition, the majority of proteins identified were uh, inflammation-related re peptides. They also found that clinical data alone did not adequately discriminate progressors from non-progressors. However, when clinical data was combined with candidate peptides, it provided improved model performance for this study. And I think this all ties back and it ties in actually very well with sort of the theme uh, and the ongoing theme, which is um, the need for biomarkers. And especially ties back with the um, great debate from this morning, focusing on treatment of lupus nephritis, uh, where Dr. Petrie said, uh, we need biomarkers to, to better guide us in, in treatment of our patients. Uh, and perhaps with the correct targeted therapy uh, based on the correct biomarkers, we can start treating patients accurately, aggressively, and initially uh, versus our traditional sort of step-up therapy or addition of, of medicines um, or crossing off medicines off a checklist, if you will. And I think this rings true, uh, of course, for psoriatic arthritis patients. And if we can find uh, the correct biomarkers to guide us uh, where we can uh, treat patients aggressively early, perhaps we can uh, decrease or eliminate some of the long-term consequences. So thanks for tuning in um, for live coverage of ACR 2021. Please go to roomnow.com and feel free to follow me on Twitter at DrRBC.